0: Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. We have revamped things out of necessity and I think out of the needs of our viewers. We're going to be talking about COVID-19 and all of the implications and all the things that you and I have to do to make sure that people are safe and that our economy and our liberties continue to flourish as we struggle with this. And of course, I'm gonna start with some good old uh, Clorox wipes. Let me wipe, wipe down all the surfaces to make sure that, that our, our, our thing is safe so our guest doesn't get, get infected via the internet. There we go, nice, okay. Okay, we need a little gallows humor as we deal with this. And today we have one of the best friends of the show, Congressman Thomas Massey. Welcome, Thomas. Hey,
1: Matt, thanks for having me on your show. Don't little- give me any virus.
0: Yeah, uh, we're, we're virus free here in voluntary quarantine. I'm a little bit jealous right now because I have voluntarily quarantined in the heart of Mordor, and I'm not sure that this is a safe place to be, even with my front door locked. I see that you're in the Shire.
1: I am I am in the Shire. I haven't quarantined per se, but it's uh, generally good here in the Shire right now, it, yeah. and, and in Kentucky in general compared to other states.
0: Yeah, and, and you're also a um, well-known, self-sufficient guy who uh, produces your own energy and your own food. So I'm, I'm a little bit envious right now because I, I feel like uh, that was a good decision on your part.
1: We don't hoard food because we make food. Like, we know where to get more of it. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, you know, I hope we'll talk about that. Uh, farmers need to be remembered during this whole lockdown situation.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to get into that because you've made some some important statements uh, um, and things that I think a lot of people are overlooking in terms of how we're going to keep people fed as we keep them safe. And I think a lot of politicians and a lot of uh, self-anointed smart people don't seem to understand much about the distributed way that we grow and produce and, and get food to the doors of people in big cities like, like where I am right now. But let's, let's get a quick congressional update first. Um, you, you guys are passing uh, trillion-dollar bills faster than I can keep track. Um, there's already been two pieces of legislation passed, and you guys are about to consider a third. Can you tell me what, as best you know, what's going on?
1: Well, uh, yeah, let me give a little bit of history. The first bill was an $8 billion bill and it was to respond to the cause of all this, the coronavirus itself. And I voted for that bill. It had uh, several things in it I didn't like, but I thought it was appropriate for the federal government to respond to the virus in a helpful way. There was a second bill which um, had a bigger price tag that uh, required employers to give paid leave and whatnot to their employees, And I had some constituents in my district who were concerned about that bill. I didn't vote for that one. Um, And there's going to be a third one now. And this is what the Senate is debating. The House is in recess right now, but the Senate is meeting. And I just heard that the Senate deal fell through, that Schumer and McConnell, uh, whatever it was they were going to vote on, is no longer going to be voted on. So they think we'll have something in the next 48 hours that's probably going to have a price tag around $2 trillion. So it's certainly going to be in excess of a trillion. Uh, and there's a chance that the House will pass that by unanimous consent. Now, that's pretty scary, if you ask me, um, to pass a trillion-dollar bill uh, by, with nobody voting on it.
0: Yeah. Like, is there has there been any opportunity to read what's in this legislation, or is that uh, is that just part of this this process where Pelosi is making all the decisions for the rest of you?
1: Well, in the second bill, Congress was given like thirty
0: minutes to read it,
1: and we're supposed to have seventy-two hours. That's a House rule that yeah. we're supposed to get seventy-two hours, but people willingly suspend that rule. They they vote. To suspend that rule, and then they vote on the bill. And I suspect the same thing will be done here on this third bill, the trillion-dollar-plus bill. I expect there'll be a vote to suspend that rule, but nobody will be there to object to that vote, so it'll just happen without a vote. The rule will be suspended and in, in less than 72 hours. It could be a matter of minutes. They'll pass it, and that wouldn't give us time to get back to Washington, D.C. to object, for instance.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, you, you've been sent home, and if, if you wanted to, could you go back and object? Or is that just because of the, the sort of social distancing? I don't know what the rules are right now in terms of Congress.
1: Well, the Constitution says that we can't be stopped coming or going from Congress. right? That's a nice little part of the Constitution. So, regardless of what states have various lockdowns in place, um, you know, the Constitution says that I can travel to Washington, D.C. and back if I want to, if there's legislative business. So, they couldn't stop you. The question is, when is it going to happen? We don't know when it's going to happen. They're basically a bunch of people in a room. Most of them aren't even elected officials in this bill. Then the elected officials get together, with the special interests, and I think that's probably what's keeping this third bill from happening, is that every special interest is trying to get something in it right now. Yeah. And they're not all being, uh, they, they don't all feel like they're represented. Everybody wants a bailout right now. And the, the problem with this legislation, by the way, Matt, it doesn't, re- it doesn't even allow our economy to start again. You can't stimulate an economy that's stopped, right? you just can't do it. You, it's like a car that's turned off and pushing on the gas pedal. It's still not going to go anywhere. You're just going to flood the carburetor.
0: Yeah. 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 So we're, I mean, I, I don't know the specifics of the bill and maybe you don't as well. And they're going to drop a bunch of uh, stuff in there, good, bad, or ugly, um, and then sort of spring it on the American people. But but you do know, and you already mentioned this, that the, the big boys, the lobbyists, the corporate interests, they'll be bellied up to the bar first because they have that special access. Um, but everything I see is is a combination of, of corporate bailouts and you know, suggestions of basically just dropping cash with a helicopter onto the economy in hopes that that, that somehow kickstarted. And it's, it's sort of a a, a very, gross caricature of the very worst forms of Keynesian economics. And as you say, if the economy shut down, if California and Ohio and New York and other states are just shutting down businesses left and right, it's not at all clear that, that any of that would have any good at all, particularly given that we're borrowing money that we don't have on top of a $23 trillion uh, debt. It, it just seems like this is insane. The,
1: the part of Keynesianism that works is you can enslave your children right You can borrow money and spend it to stimulate the economy and that and that usually works right but yeah. even it, but and I'm no fan of Keynesianism okay but I'm just saying that you can you can eat your seed corn and get nourishment from it okay? <laughs> But then when it comes time to plant the corn, there's nothing there and and you're killing off your next crop. But in this case, I don't even think that's gonna work because you're gonna have more dollars chasing fewer goods. Somebody asked me, are the fundamentals of our economy sound? This was a couple of days ago and they were citing economic indicators. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. The fundamental of any economy is people get up and go to work and they make something or provide a service. And that basic thing is not happening right now. So I don't care what macroeconomic thing you try, the microeconomics are broken, they're stalled. And until we get that going, it's not gonna get fixed. You, can't, you can dump any amount of money on it and it's not gonna start it back up. Now, a lot of people will take advantage of that bill. People will squirrel some of that money away. Uh, you know, Companies will buy back their stock probably um, that sort of thing. Although they're trying to figure out how to circumvent that. I'm not, that's not to say people, there aren't certain people that are going to benefit from this bill. I just think overall, it's not going to solve the problem. Yeah. The problem is, the, is the virus, right? Why don't we, why don't we work on a bill that works on trying to
0: solve this virus problem? Has there been any serious legislative efforts to reduce, uh, regulatory barriers and, and, and health uh, regulation barriers to medical innovations. I just read a story today that I believe the FDA finally gave 3M permission to distribute um, uh, medical masks that that were that were made for construction, so hadn't been approved for medical use. But of course, hospitals and and healthcare professionals and people that want to be more safe don't have access to these things. Um, and I'm asking myself why why did we just get that done today? Is there any serious effort at re- reducing some barriers where people could act and, and help themselves? I think
1: there are a few rifle shots where they go in and they find one very specific thing that's gumming up the works and they you know provide some regulatory relief for that specific company in that specific circumstance. But what they need to do is, is just a widespread rollback of regulations in this area. And they better do it also on food production pretty soon. Uh, and p- people could argue, oh, you're going to make the food less safe. What food? What food is there going to be to eat if we keep the economy shut down for three months? Spring only comes once a year you know, in this country. So uh, it's, it's a problem. We should be rolling back regulations. We should be making it easier, by the way, for farmers to sell locally to consumers um, instead of this centralized process that requires all this shipping right now, uh, there are a lot of regulations like that that I think we could undo. I, you know, one of the things that we've got to get out of the way, and I mean we, when I say we, I mean with my government hat on, is with the testing. We need more test kits. There, I, I've been saying there's, uh, the biggest lie, you know, the government ever says is I'm um, the government and I'm here to help. The second biggest lie is that the uh, N95 masks only work for healthcare professionals, that they don't work for civilians. And the, and the third biggest lie is not everybody needs tested. We need to get to a situation where everybody who wants a test can get a test. And you can do that by unleashing the free market. Can you, can you imagine if there was a test available right now, how many people would buy it? if it were, let's say, $100, that company would make obscene amounts of money and then somebody would figure out how to sell it for $50 and pretty soon the test would be like one of those pregnancy tests that you can buy, you know, at the pharmacy or you could buy a six-pack of these tests. And yeah. you're not not only would everybody get tested, everybody could test every day. Like, that's one of the ways we're going to defeat this virus.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that's the, the, everything that we're doing, um, and, and let's assume that most of it is well-intentioned. We just talk about the, the lobbyist feeding frenzy. And I, I do notice that, that every member of Congress who has had in the past a big government scheme, let's say bailing out college students, you could fill in the blank, there's, there's giveaways for everything, they've suddenly rediscovered that this idea was perfectly designed for the, uh, contagion and, and they're just filling the Christmas tree with that. But, but it strikes me that um, any, any one of those proposals is, is, is 100% centralized. It's requiring that only a few smart people sort of decide things for us. And But what you're describing about when you, t- when you talk about a free market approach is a radically decentralized approach that allows um, families and communities and, and innovators and healthcare professionals and, and fill in the blank to, to solve these problems from the bottom up. And it strikes me that the, the more widespread this threat becomes, the more we're gonna to have to rely on the, the, the common sense, good ideas of, of people that are actually dealing with the problems. Absolutely. I mean, some of the medical uh, tools
1: that are needed, why not let people 3D print those, right? Would you, would you rather not have the medical, uh, facility or the medical tool, or would you rather have something that's ninety percent? I'd rather have the ninety percent solution, frankly. Just yeah. to not have anything. And and I think that's something that could be done as well,
0: regulatory wise. It sort of begs the, the bigger question when the dust settles if if uh, regulating things out of existence, there's this there's this phrase I think You may have heard called the precautionary principle, and it's this, this sort of hardcore regulatory state type approach that says we're not going to allow anything into the market until we can prove without a shadow of a doubt that it's 100% effective and 100% safe. And it takes years and years and millions and millions of dollars to, to bring anything to market under that principle. And it, it appears to be that that is still sort of dominating. The, the government mindset on how we deal with this virus, very top-down, and nobody wants to get blamed in case a mistake is made, so they're just not doing enough.
1: Right. There's another way to say that. No government regulator ever got fired for saying no. Like Some, some have been <laughs> fired for saying yes, and yeah. so their their bias is always to say no. But we're going to get to a point with this virus where A few government regulators might get tarred and feathered for saying no. They might not get fired, but there's definitely going to be some uh, animosity toward them for stopping just common sense solutions and cures to this virus.
0: I mean, the governor of New York, uh, Cuomo, said just a couple days ago, I mean and he, and if for if anyone's missed this he has completely shut down the entire state of New York one of the largest economies in the United States and he said if we save just one life this will all be worth it and that this is a this is sort of a classic example of this uh, I don't want to get blamed for anything so I'm going to take the most draconian action I haven't really thought through the unintended consequences of what happens when I shut down entire economies, but, but that way I won't get blamed. Profound
1: economic ignorance, and it's gonna to lead to lots of deaths and lots of suffering when they just shut everything down. Um, our, our governor is doing similar things. You end up with these issues at the state border. So for instance, I have a company in my district today that contacted me and said, We've, you know our governor says that essential companies can keep operating And what they do is they print uh, instructions for drugs, right? If you've ever opened a box or a bottle of drugs and from the drugstore or prescription and you open it up and there's like that page that shows you everything on it, uh, they print that. So they've been deemed essential. But guess what? A third of their employees live in Ohio and Ohio has been told to shelter in place. So what happens when Ohio is sheltering in place and Kentucky, a company in Kentucky, needs to print the the labels for the drugs? And these, I mean, they might be tapped to print the labels for the cure that comes up, you know, that, that somebody comes up with. Yeah. But if somebody's sheltered in place in another state and can't get to work because of that, because they're afraid they'll get pulled over and thrown in jail for it, then, I mean, how's that going to work? This is like... A central planning dream for a central planner, but it's a nightmare in reality for everybody else that has to live under this. I mean, you literally have governors who are attorneys. They've never built anything in their life. They've never grown anything in their lives. You know, a lot of them never
0: run a company
1: and they're trying to tell us what's essential and what's non-essential in the economy. That's really dangerous.
0: Yeah. And, and by and, and by the way, everybody's definition of essential and non-essential is different, and the only thing that is the same is that economic ignorance that that you just described. Uh, I don't think you know. I don't. I don't think any of this is malice, but the inability to understand what a division of labor is and how complex <laughs> and, and distributed our responsibilities are in a complex economy, and for some reason. And I think this might be sort of a cultural thing, too. I, I think city folk have never really thought carefully about where the food that shows up on their front doorstep actually came from and all of the, the people and 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 functions that were required to get it there. So maybe talk about that, because you mentioned farmers, and you're from a farming state, and this, this, this affects you guys. Well, it
1: absolutely does, and I think uh, some people who've never been to a, a big farm have this idealistic vision of what happens, you know, the farmer gets up and the farmer's wife cooks uh, biscuits and he goes out and gets on his tractor and, you know, makes the food or something. When in reality, most farms, most of the food is made on giant farms, right? And the farmer is is a manager of a company and he needs employees to show up to work that day or nothing happens, right? Like the scale of the farm is so huge, the farmer is not going to go out there and get on his tractor. He's got, you know, half a dozen combines and a, and a whole crew, you know, responsible f- for each one to keep everything going. And if those people don't show up to work because their kids can't get daycare, or if they go to the, the farm supply place to get the fertilizer to put on the field, and the employees aren't at the farm supply place to load the bulk fertilized spreaders, you know, you're in trouble. So, you know, you got to really understand how farming works. Now, mine is a small farm. I have 65 cattle. So it might work more the way that people envision, except uh, because of the stupid government regulations, in order to turn one of my animals into a hamburger, there's this big process involved. I can't go to the local... Uh, butcher and have him process a beef for me. I have to drive three hours on the interstate to a place that looks like a factory, and and drop my cattle off, and then they go into this factory and they come out as hamburger with the USDA stamp on them, and that's what you have to go through. Now, what happens if the people don't show up to work at that factory because they couldn't get daycare, for instance? Mm-hmm. What happens if the hamburger grinder at that factory who's working? And the machine shop is closed. Uh, you know, all of that grinds to a halt, and we, you know, we our food production system is is a little bit brittle in that way. There, it used to be more distributed, smaller farms, and f- farmers used to sell more of their goods locally. But as things consolidated, the companies that end up ended up as the aggregators, like the meat packers or the or the dairy cooperatives they actually welcomed more regulation into their business because it became a barrier to entry for their competitors and it made sure that the small farmer instead of selling to consumers went through that aggregator and so the aggregators in this system love big government they're they're you know cohabitants yeah they, Really, the USDA is sitting in the meat processor's plant. Yeah. And then the, then the meat processor has a lobbyist sitting up at the USDA in Washington, D.C. And that's made our system more brittle because now all the food has to pass through just a few small points. And so when, we, when transportation breaks down, when daycare breaks down, when all, all of these things, uh, you know, the secondary and, and tertiary suppliers to those corporations break down, then the food supply stops.
0: Yeah. So, so this, this regulatory process that has centralized the agricultural com, uh, economy has made us more vulnerable in times of crisis, and that'll only be exacerbated by, by some faceless bureaucrats' determination about what, what job is essential and what job is non-essential um, not having any understanding of how that whole system you just described works.
1: That's right. And it's, and like I said, it's gotten more and more brittle. Now you can say, let's just relax the regulations and um, let this thing work itself out. Well, the regulations have already killed most of the small meat processors. Right. So that I just, I, I had my wife call up our local meat processor. I was like, you know what? Screw it. Screw the USDA. We're going to get some of these cattle butchered and we're gonna, we're gonna sell them to people, and if they wanna take me to jail for it, then screw it. So, uh, but I called him up, guess what? Everybody else has got the same idea. And he's backed up, you know, for several weeks. And so we've got a brittle system with not enough people who can provide these services because they've already been regulated out of existence.
0: Yeah, and that's just production. And then you get to the question of how to get that food Assuming that that farmers are allowed to farm, how do we get that food to the people that need it in times of crisis? And you were telling me a story earlier about about trucking, for instance.
1: How do you get the food? Well, the the government has deemed uh, grocery stores as sort of essential businesses, so they can stay open and the pharmacies can stay open, but gatherings of 10 or more people are illegal. And so what about a farmer's market? What about your local farmer's market? I'm worried they're going to be, you know, it's going to depend on the state.
0: They shut them down down here in D.C.
1: You have it. There's your answer in D.C. They shut them down. So that's just that's ridiculous. And here's the other thing, uh, Matt, that happened here in Kentucky just a couple days ago when they shut all the restaurants down abruptly and and they said, well, you can do takeout. Well, a lot of these restaurants aren't geared for a takeout and don't have drive-throughs, so they shut down. So this whole supply chain that's geared for supplying the restaurants with food just shut down and millions of dollars of produce rotted because it's not packaged you know, for distribution in a grocery store, for instance. And, and those trucks don't go to those grocery stores. And so there was a crisis and I'm sure you had that in every state. And I know a lot of food had to rot because of that. You don't get that back.
0: Right. And I'm, I'm worried about, uh, you know, you have this distributed supply chain and, and the, the chain was was full of stuff at the beginning of this crisis. But as more and more of these antici- unanticipated unintended consequences of, of, uh, these, these shutdowns, um, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna have a problem worse than the virus. The the cure may in fact be more dangerous than the virus.
1: Yeah. And not just, you know, it's not like we're talking about the economic trade-off versus lives. Okay. We're talking about lives versus lives, right? Suicides are going to go up. I talked to a cardiac, uh, a doctor, a cardiologist, Day before yesterday, and he's you know he puts the stents in folks to keep them going, and he said typically a, a day in the office I see four patients, three of them are outpatients and one of them is bad enough that they have to stay in the hospital, so it's an inpatient. He said that ratio is flipped now. Three of my patients on an average day are are inpatients and one is an outpatient. He said because they're showing up in worse health, more stressed out, not. Not eating well, not exercising. They've been told that sitting on the couch is the best thing to do, you know, by their government. And so you're going to, people are going to start dying from that. They, I guarantee it's already happened, right? Somewhere there's been a suicide over this and nobody's reporting on that. And there's going to be more and more of those. Uh, People will be malnourished. There are, you know, any number of things, people aren't going to get the the insulin they need. Uh, you know, you can go down the list and it's going to get worse and worse. And that's from the cure. That's not from the virus. And that's, right. I'm, I'm not talking about trying to optimize an economy for profit. I'm talking about trying to optimize an economy for the most number of people who live. Right. To maintain lives.
0: And, did, you know, just shutting down restaurants as an example, and it's a, it's a very narrow example because I think we've shut down a tremendous amount of, of businesses that support that entire consumer economy. These are all people that effectively just lost their jobs, so they don't necessarily have a way to pay for healthcare, to pay for food and shelter and electricity and all the things that, that we sort of uh, take for granted in a modern economy. And, I, you know, I wonder what happens when unemployment benefits, I, I don't know how far you can go with that, um, because we're, we're talking about essentially an unprecedented level of unemployment.
1: Yeah, I talked to a, another legislator who said, you know, I could vote for just giving cash to people if, if we also turn the economy back on. But just giving cash to people is not going to solve their problem if there's nowhere to spend it. Yeah, and and it's also it's not sustainable. I mean, things are easy to turn off and hard to turn on.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'm an I'm an economist. I'm I'm not a politician. You're you're actually an inventor more than a politician. Um, but I think it's very difficult to explain to people, uh, particularly again, city folk. I don't think that people in cities um, see the the distributed nature of the division of labor the way we do. So they, there's, there's an economist I love who talks about the seen and the unseen. So they see certain things, like the, the grocery store shelves filled at Whole Foods, but they don't see the unintended consequences of some of these actions. How do, how do we explain that to people so that it doesn't sound like, doesn't sound like we don't care about people that are at risk because of the virus, but we're worried about even more people dying if we shut this machine down. Um, That's
1: part of the reason I came on your show is to try and explain it. I don't know if we're gonna be able to explain it to everybody. Uh, People mostly get mad at you if you try to change their worldview. Uh, Even when you're just trying to be helpful, they get mad. Uh, they make you sound like the crazy person when you try to explain these things to them. Um, I don't know what the best way to do it is. I mean, I've been on Facebook and, and Twitter and social media um, trying to explain it. But I think what might explain it is when they go to the grocery store and instead of and, and I know we've all seen the, you know, uh, apocryphal, pictures of the grocery stores are empty, but the reality is they're getting filled back up right now. Like, you know, they get, they get, that's at the end of the day and they get restocked and you can go back to the grocery store and are rationing, but there's food still coming back to the shelves. What happens when you go to the grocery store in the morning and the shelves are still empty? I think that's when the lesson is going to come home. Not just to you know. I mean, you're picking on city folk, and that's a fun thing to do sometimes. But, um, and I know you can do that because you're a city folk man. <laughs> but
0: uh, I'm definitely me, part of the problem.
1: Let me let me pick on instead of picking on city folk or country folk. Let me pick on my fellow politicians. These governors are going to learn a hard lesson about the economy. I think the one thing that's going to snap them back into reality is when they don't have enough revenue to pay their state workers because they've shut down the economy and then they're gonna suddenly remember, oh wait, we were taken, you know, depending on the state government, five to 15% of everything that was going on and we just shut that down so now we can't make payroll. And when the governors can't make payroll because they've taken away everybody else's livelihood, that may bring them back to reality. The, the problem is, I, I fear in this bailout, there's going to be more inducements to the governors to, to uh, do this bad behavior of shutting down their economies. Like if we incentivize governors to shut down their economies, even the good governors, the ones who've held out and tried to be rational, they're going to they're gonna eventually economically be forced to do what the other governors have done or coerced into doing it. I won't say forced, they still should have a choice.
0: So I I noticed that um, a lot of folks, I won't name them by name because um, I'm not interested in shaming them, at least not yet, but I notice a lot of people are um, amazingly applauding the Chinese governments, the communist Chinese governments, extremely command and control, almost violent uh, lockdown of their economy and their people. And it, it seems more than a little bit ironic that th- that same government that, that covered up this virus as it emerged um, from Wuhan province, um, because they wanted to keep their power, that a lot of, a lot of American uh, smart people are thinking, hey, let's follow the Chinese model, because they seem to really have a handle on things now. Um, that's scary stuff.
1: First blush, it looks like dictators have an advantage in dealing with pandemics, right? They can tell people uh, where to go, when to work, when not to work, what to eat. Um, it seems like you know it's it's a little bit seductive in the beginning, like the dictators have the best hand dealt to them in a pandemic. But let's not forget the dictators of the world have killed millions of people. Right? That's the other constraint that's not upon them, since they typically can control the news outlets and whatever, they can get away with all sorts of things. I've encouraged people not to give up on freedom and liberty and the free market and capitalism. Like We have an advantage, we've always had an advantage in every crisis, and we've always come out ahead or better off than the dictatorships, not because we emulated them but because we went in the other direction and we empowered people, not governments, to solve these problems. And that's what I think we should do.
0: Let's talk about, let's talk about that, because we've been painting this, this dire scenario where it seems like governors, particularly you know, the ones shutting down their economies, um, and there's plenty of federal legislators taking the same approach, the, the dire consequences of that kind of behavior can be catastrophic for, for American families. And you're suggesting that that freedom and individual responsibility and a, and a more decentralized approach is better. Um, from what I've read, South Korea, um, as compared to China, has taken a less command and control, more voluntary um, approach to, to containing the virus and keeping their economy alive. Um, Explain how that would work in in practice here in the United States. Well, I
1: think there are a lot of things we could be doing differently than we are right now. Instead of shutting down schools completely, uh, we could have reduced the ridiculous rule here in Kentucky where you have to have 80% attendance or you don't get money from the state to keep your school system going. Like if we just got rid of that one rule and the school systems could have operated with 30% attendance, the probability of spreading this virus at a school would go down dramatically if only 30% of the kids showed up. And by the way, that's probably the number of, of kids that on average, I mean, it varies by school district, but on average, that's probably the number of kids who depend on school to get a meal every day, right? That's and added to the number of kids whose parents have no other option for daycare. They don't, they don't have the money to hire daycare and, and pay their taxes, which have funded the school. By the way, I've noticed nobody suspended the school tax. They've, they've closed down the schools, but they haven't suspended the school tax and given you a credit to go pay for daycare. But if they, if they had kept the schools open at let's say a, a much reduced attendance rate of like 30% and made school optional, I think we could have not caused the daycare crisis We could have not caused the the crisis where kids may not be getting uh, enough food to eat, and we could have attenuated the spread of this disease. The same thing with restaurants. So, a lot of states, you know, the state here in Kentucky and one across the river in Ohio, they shut down restaurants, dine in, you know, the dine in aspect of the restaurant. Well, instead of shutting them down completely, There were a lot of things they could have done that made sense, but they they didn't do. So, for instance, you know, when I'm overseas, and uh, I'm not going to pick on any countries, but in countries where people famously come back with certain, you know, gastrointestinal ailments, when I go to those countries, I only order hot food. I don't eat the salad, I don't eat the fresh vegetables. I know this sounds unhealthy, but it's a lot healthier than not eating. And it's a lot healthier than shutting down our economy. You could have told restaurants, okay, you have to serve all your meals hot and they have to come out on a hot plate. And by the way, nobody's drinking out of a, a glass that's being poured into from a pitcher anymore. When you serve somebody, you're going to serve it in a bottle or some other container. And um, you know, people could have, we could have allowed the elderly to come in between the hours of five and seven for dinner. And then everybody, you know, under the age of 60 could have come in to eat after 7 p.m. There are a lot of things that we could have done differently instead of just shutting down the whole restaurant system. And then finally, people are used to going to work, and as a condition of work, they wear safety equipment. I've been in a lot of factories in my industry. Some of them require you wear a hairnet if you're in food production. Some of them require you to wear safety goggles if you're in a machine shop. If you're in a construction site, you wear a, you know, a hard hat. Um, why not say, if you, you know, why not add to that list of things that people wear to work or at work, a mask? There's some places where you wear a mask at work already. There, instead of shutting down the whole business, um, how about propping the doors open so people don't have to touch the door handles? How about having, if it's a door that needs shut, station somebody there and have them open the door and shut the door for people if you don't have an automatic door opener, right? There's just so many common sense things we could have done to slow the spread of this virus because nobody's pretending we're going to stop the spread of this virus. These are all about strategies to slow the spread of this virus. And there's lots of things we could have done without shutting down the economy to achieve that. We could have, could have brought in UV lights and, and put uh, more UV in the HVAC Systems to to uh, kill viruses and other bacteria that might circulate through the HVAC. So many different things we could have done instead of just shutting down our economy, which is going to cause so much pain
0: and suffering. And and one of the things that that I very much believe, and I see this in the behavior of my friends and neighbors, that that you don't have to force people to behave in a way that's in their personal interests and in their community's interests, at the point of a gun, we're naturally going to be more cautious. We're naturally going to do as much social distancing and, and even self-quarantining as is possible. Um, I'm doing it. All my friends are doing it. I'm, I'm insisting that, that our little staff of employees do it right now. The reason you and I are on Skype instead of in the studio is in large part because uh, I, my team is all working remotely right now and my wife and I had to figure out how to set this up with, with some of our team. Um, but of course, we're in the information economy and I, I, going back to the, it's not city folk versus country folk, but I do think no. that there's there's a cultural divide between those of us that, that work in, I call it the information economy, but it's all technology, um, very important part of, of our economy and and we have a certain privilege if you will we we can work remotely um, we can do a lot of the things that we've always done being totally isolated from other people but in large part because we don't get our hands dirty we're not in the dirt we're not working with other people that are producing things and and we need to make sure that uh, those people are free to make responsible decisions as well but we don't know what those best decisions are
1: no and um, employers wanted to the, the employers I've talked to want to do the right thing. Um, they would like to test their employees, for instance, not not for the benefit of the boss, but for the benefit of all the employees who are there. Yeah. If your workforce is, is sick, then you're not going to have a, a productive business. And so employees have an incentive also to or employers have an incentive to keep their employees healthy. And I think we just, we need to get to this point quickly where you can screen employees and the, the ones who aren't uh, you know, contagious can come to work.
0: Yeah, I've read that even nurses can't get tests right now. And, and I feel like this is an example of where just unfettered free market capitalism would solve this problem if we would just get out of the way and make testing ubiquitous and available I, I don't feel like this is rocket science, but if it if it involves a bunch of federal and state and even global bureaucrats, uh, it's never gonna get done.
1: I know, and, and I think I've already mentioned this, but we need to quit lying to people and saying that people don't need tests. Like that's a that's a big fat lie. And we need to quit lying to people and saying that, you know, respirators and dust masks and whatever won't work for for everyday people that they only work for healthcare professionals. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to say, you know what, all of these things are important, but we're, we have scarcity now. And so we need to prioritize. And, um, that's okay to say that And that way, when the free market solves this problem and people rush in with more of the personal protective gear and more of the tests, now everybody can get those tests. Okay, so
0: we're um, we're running out of time here. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and being part of this this great social experiment, where we can have a personal conversation. And we're we're uh, we're three states, four states away right now. Um, yeah. I'm again, sort of uh, envious of the Shire. There, it looks like a safer place to be than where I'm at. But uh, thank you, Congressman Massey, and uh, be safe. And please, please keep fighting for the things that are gonna keep us really safe.
1: All right, I'm gonna fight for the things that keep us safe and I'm gonna fight for the things that will allow people here in Kentucky to keep their jobs and to keep their businesses. Um, because I'm, I'm concerned right now that what's coming out of Washington DC, the cures that are being proposed are, are worse than the disease. And so um, I'm trying to be a voice of reason here. Hopefully I don't get beat up too badly but when it's all over, I hope people see that I was doing the right thing.
0: Just don't read the comments on Facebook and you'll be fine.
1: <laughs> or or the, the headlines in the local newspaper.
0: Oh man, yeah. Well, it's, it's political season, so things are gonna get silly. Yep. Okay, thank you, sir. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.